From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is First Person. This week, China's influence campaign. During the 2016 presidential debates, Donald Trump was asked about U.S. intelligence reports demonstrating Russian hacking of the Democratic National Committee. Trump was noncommittal. I mean, it could be Russia, but it could also be China. It could also be lots of other people. It also could be somebody sitting on their bed that weighs 400 pounds, okay? Over the past two years, while Russia has been under intense scrutiny, China has actually begun setting off alarms with an uptick in activities meant to extend their influence. Places like Australia and New Zealand have been affected. This summer, Australia's parliament passed a foreign interference law because of China's meddling in its political system. And next door in New Zealand, there's been a scandal involving a Chinese-born member of parliament suspected of spying for Beijing. In the first of our series, and in Taiwan, China continues to make the case for unification. Taiwanese independence would be a disaster. Those are the words of Chinese President Xi Jinping, who made the comments in a speech on Wednesday in Beijing. Taiwan. So is how does China exert its power both domestically and internationally? And how vulnerable is America to its influence now that the 2020 presidential campaign is about to kick into gear? For answers to those questions, foreign policy senior editor James Palmer recently spoke with Peter Mattis. Mattis has a deep knowledge of China's inner workings. He is currently a research fellow at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, and he is co-authoring a reference guide on Chinese intelligence. But before all that, he worked as an analyst for the CIA. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, James. So tell us a little bit about how you became interested in China in general and the topic of Chinese influence. I got interested in China basically through the language. I was looking for something different going into university. And thanks to a couple of friends, they sort of said, well, maybe you should consider Chinese. And it just sort of blossomed from there. You know, spent a couple of years studying language at the University of Washington went over to Beijing, studied at Tsinghua. And while I was at university, I worked at the National Bureau of Asian Research. And naturally, being someone young, ambitious, looking for for something to do, you want to end up coming to Washington, D.C. And the opportunity that first presented itself was to work as an analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency. And you got sort of an odd phone call saying, well, we're not sure about this for you, but what have you have you ever thought about being a counterintelligence analyst? Hmm. So being sort of young and stupid, I said, of course, yes, without thinking about it and hanging up the phone, wondered, what did I just sign up for? And so for four years, I was looking at sort of intelligence activities and trying to describe how they affect U.S. interests. And one of the sort of striking things about sort of this issue of the Chinese Communist Party's interference and political influence activities, is that a lot of it takes place in sort of gray spaces. And inside government, you spend a lot of time on sort of the black, the truly clandestine or or covert. And where things sort of trailed off into the gray, there was always enough work that you would have to say, well, eh, maybe we shouldn't go into that gray area because that's not really where the story is. And... The good thing about that is that when I left government in 2010, it meant that I had a lot of lingering questions of, you know, something was missing here. I couldn't explain. And because those things trailed off into the gray, you could sort of like, well, let's see what I can do with open sources. So what would you say are those main gray areas in the United States? What are the areas that, are, that 
aren't quite legal, aren't quite illegal, or that are just ripe for exploitation? Well, as I've tried to parse some of the Chinese definitions of the terms, things like intelligence, social affairs, united front work, I started to realize that intelligence is actually kind of a hard core within a much broader system. This big piece in the gray area, though, is, is united front work. And it doesn't really fit normal sort of intelligence definitions because, yes, there's an element of, of activity that may be involved in spying, but not necessarily. I think it's, there's a part of it that's a component of messaging and China's external propaganda. So I think it's really better to think of this as political mobilization. In a declassified 1957 CIA report, there's a nice, I think, pithy definition, if you will, of, of United Front work that is something like the controlling, utilizing, and mobilizing the non-communist masses. Or if you want to put this into sort of even shorter and pithier terms, how to make idiots useful. And is there a specific department that manages United Front work, or is this something that's run across multiple elements of the party? Well, there is a specific department, and there is, a, in a sense, a professional core. But it's really better to think of this as a system, because everything that's written about United Front work is very clear, that this is the responsible of every party cadre at every level, every day. You know, in a sense, it's like a party secretary in an area might have sort of guidance about economic growth, how to handle pollution, a quota on keeping unrest down, and oh yeah, you need to have 250 United Front contacts, you know, whatever the, the metrics are. So it's, it really is a component of every piece of the party. But there is a professional system that's centered on the United Front Work Department, and there are United Front Work Departments attached to all four levels of the party committees, and even in some enterprises and sort of non-corporate entities. So we've talked a little bit about United Front Work in China, about this, the instructions this party secretary is building up contacts. How does it manifest in the United States? What kind of activities does United Front Work involve here? A big chunk of what United Front Work involves is controlling ethnic Chinese communities wherever they are. In some cases, how, regardless how distant they may be from China. You know, if they've been in the U.S. or in Canada for five, six, seven, eight generations, they're still Chinese, according to the view of the party, and there's an attempt to, you know, knit those groups together under the party's banner. And in one sense, it's a long-term effort to build influence in social groups. So wherever you see sort of groups coming together that could affect Chinese interests, you see United Front work in some form or another trying to organize or to take over social organizations so that the party is involved in the way people socialize. So in the U.S., what kind of organizations are they targeting then? So Chinese community things, what else? Scientific associations, Chinese students and scholars associations on university campuses. And there's also a component of this which is elite handling. You can't understand United Front work without thinking about the party's security perceptions the best place to start is the national security law in 2015, which basically defines the threats as anything that affects the CCP's ability to govern China, or it's the absence of threats to the CCP's ability to govern China. Western democracies basically define threats as the ability to manage threats that exist and resilience in the face of catastrophe. 
the absence of threats is essentially unlimited. And I think this is why you see some of the reactions to, say, feminist activism or sort of any activism sort of anywhere, anytime in Xinjiang and Tibet, that there's constantly reaching into activity and anytime it seems like it might affect the party's interests, it could be dangerous. The other key piece of this is that this is about the world of ideas. It's not just about sort of physical threats. Some of those threats to the party are the rule of law, constitutionalism, academic freedom, professional journalism. So these are mostly conceived of as being threats within China. What do they see as a potential menace, either geopolitically or sort of in the world of ideas in the United States? Well, you could say there are two components of it. Sort of on the elite control, you're trying to preempt more powerful Western democracies from taking actions against China. In terms of looking at the Chinese people that are living outside of China, they're fully aware of their own history, that so many of the CCP members that became important, in fact, you know, sort of converted to communism, if you will, outside in France and the Soviet mm -hmm. Union and elsewhere. Um, when you look at a number of the discussions ahead of the 1911 revolution, again, many of the networks were built originally outside of China before coming in. And so these people outside China are the ones that can translate those dangerous ideas. It doesn't matter how well you and I can speak Chinese or communicate. We're not the ones who are going to be able to take an idea of professional journalism or freedom of speech and association and translate these terms into ways that resonate among the Chinese population. So the idea is really to stop these sort of diaspora Chinese groups, Chinese Americans, Chinese Canadians mm -hmm. and so on, from bringing these ideas back into China or from acting as vectors that bring these ideas back into well, China? Basically, anybody who's departed from China, not necessarily people who would define themselves as, as Chinese sure. Americans. Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't matter whether you left yesterday mm -hmm. or eight generations ago. If you're a PhD student or a, a visiting professor or a, even just somebody who's coming, I guess, to the U.S. for family reasons, it's all potentially kind of uh, threatening. Right. In one sense... Our view of the open doors of a Western university is based on the idea that if people come to these, then they'll experience these ideas and they'll be sort of our best messengers or missionaries for, you know, we may call them universal values or Western values, but they are also part of the UN Charter and sort of fundamental international documents. And I think you could also say United Front Work or what the party is doing on a university campus is trying to prevent students from having a free and full experience. So what about in terms of trying to sort of um, politically influence non-Chinese, trying to reach elites in Washington? Do we also see sort of efforts on that front? Yes. And like I said, I put those largely in the view of preempting decisions that go against China. I think that would be one portion of it. Another portion, I think, would be trying to reflect legitimacy back into the PRC. Like if you look at the television footage of Nixon's visit to China in 1972... There's an effort to show that you know, Nixon is being obsequious to Mao, that he's the one who's sort of genuflecting, even though the United States is the superpower. And as we now know about the Cultural Revolution, the party's hold over the country in 1972 was remarkably thin. It did not cover most of the country. And so in a sense, they're trying to say, look, the Soviet Union's our enemy, and the one group of people who would help you against the party are eating out of our hand. Hmm. So you don't have a choice, Chinese people. This is the party, and we're the ones who are in charge. And you see this in the effort to get Western elites to parrot some of the phrases, the you know, shared destiny of, of all humankind, 
800 million people lifted out of poverty. poverty. Right. When those phrases are put into the sort of the mouths of Westerners or other foreigners, you see them sort of push back in to say, look, the rest of the world is accepting what the party has said and is reinforcing the stories and the party's truth, not others. What's the difference between these sort of influence efforts and the type of work that the United States, say, tries to do in Vietnam or in Poland? I mean, where the U.S. tries to spread its values, it tries to, it tries to reach influential individuals and persuade people and so on. The fundamental difference here is transparency. U.S. efforts in this field basically fall into two categories. They're either sort of completely white and out in the open, or they're purely in the black as covert action. And one of the telling things about the differences between the United Front system and, say, covert action in a democratic state is that covert action ends up being a completely separate policy process. It has a completely special and separate set of rules for how it's conducted, how the ideas are generated, how it's executed. So it means that it's not a normal part of policy. It's not just anyone can say, oh, let's do these little things the way that something in the white might be. Just to sort of take a concrete example, if you, you have, say, I don't know, the Department of Agriculture is attempting to get a deal overseas, the Department of Agriculture doesn't reach out to covert organizations and ask them to sort of manipulate these efforts or uh, distort these efforts. Whereas uh, in a Chinese example, this is conceived as one package of ideas of influence. Yes, and I think actually a very good example from Chinese history is the way Zhou Enlai handled the opening of relations with Japan. He made it very clear that they didn't want Chinese diplomats to accept overtures from the Japanese government and that they weren't going to be reaching out to the Japanese government to try to open the relationship. What they were going to do was pick winners among the Japanese business community and selectively allow them to succeed in China since that would sort of give the measure of their knowledge of China. I mean, how often do we essentially judge a businessman or business person by the money that they've earned? You know, if they've been successful, they must know how things work. And by choosing people to win in China, Zhou Enlai's explicit objective was that these people would influence the Liberal Democratic Party ruling Japan and push them toward an opening with China on more favorable terms than if China had been reaching out to them. So we've talked about the the sort of, as it were, the strengths of the system, all these uh, the vast involvement, the sort of daily work. When it comes to dealing with the United States, what are its weaknesses? What problems does it have? Because, you know, I worked in Chinese state media for a long time, and which is in many ways part of United Front work, of course. And one of the things that was very visible there was that there was a real gap in the understanding of how American culture worked or American public society worked. And it was also very difficult for them to craft messages that were appealing to Americans because the messages, first and foremost, had to fit sort of domestic political constraints. Look, if I were to pick out sort of two strengths of the systems, it would be dealing with Chinese outside of the PRC and it would be dealing with individual elites for exactly the kinds of reasons that you're talking about. It's very difficult to craft messages that resonate in another country, in another culture. And if you look at, at how long it took them to adjust to Taiwan, you have to really wonder if they couldn't do it there when they have you know, an incredible amount of intelligence resources and sort of a direct knowledge of the culture. Shared culture, shared, shared language, language, shared history, mm-hmm. shared relatives. Well, sort of depends on which part of Taiwan you, sure, you sure, want to talk yeah, about. But, 
but you know the point holds like they should have been able to be able to react on the fly but they had a lot of difficulty doing that i mean it took them years to adjust to get to the point where they may be today in the united states i don't think they're there at kind of crafting those messages and so you see them good at manipulating the chinese community groups and you see them good at manipulating individual elites because dealing with a person one on one if you've sort of been trained in elicitation techniques and in ways to read people and ways to sort of figure out how to push buttons, there's a very technical set of skills that you can use. It's easier to buy one person than to buy, say, 50 million people in California. That's where their biggest weakness is, is building sort of a groundswell of support. So let's just quickly talk about Taiwan because um, we had the Taiwanese local elections recently, which were a big defeat for the ruling party and a victory for the KMT, the uh, nationalists who despite having in the past once been fierce opponents of the Communist Party are now seen as very much, if not necessarily on the same side, at least as working towards greater unity with the mainland, greater contacts with the mainland. There have been a lot of concerns um, about Chinese influence in those elections, about uh, the ways that Taiwanese society was affected. Could you detail some of those for us? Well, given I think it's too early to provide kind of a forensic analysis of what took place in the elections, especially as the, as the effect of, of the CCP's interference. It seems like they've been trying to burn things down. You know, it, it's moved toward a more Russian approach, directly trying to plant stories, um, injecting disinformation to suggest that the Taiwan government is not capable of, of managing, you know, problems like gas leaks and there's magnifying news that sort of a little leak that could be addressed by the company, a gas company, quite quickly was in fact a major explosion preparing to happen and you know blocks needed to evacuate. Or taking pictures of demonstrations that maybe covered the doorway in front of a building and trying to suggest that this was a massive demonstration you know, rather than a handful of people. Working through organized crime groups to intimidate activists and students. The sort of fake doctored photographs to suggest that the PLA Air Force was able to fly much closer to Taiwan than they've ever flown at any point in history. These were all efforts to, to discredit. So, you know, do you think we'll ever see anything like the level of alleged Russian interference in the 2016 elections done by the Chinese in America? I think we're probably helped by not having a parliamentary system of government where a, a government can fall on the basis of you know, a small number of MPs um, losing their seats. In the case of Australia a year ago, the Benelong by-election, you know, the government held a majority of one. There's no situation in the United States where that kind of shift would play out. The question, I think, would be at what point would the CCP feel comfortable with the kind of direct manipulation? And... If they've only started doing that with Taiwan, then I think it's some time before we ever see anything like that, mm. if ever. But as far as cultivating candidates and cultivating voices and trying to ensure that China-friendly voices have the microphone in the United States, that they'll continue to do and continue to, to push quite relentlessly, I think. So what should um, democratic powers be doing about this um, in terms of both their own societies and maybe in places like Taiwan. And how do we, in particular, you know, we've talked a lot about Chinese communities, about the way in which 
the CCP sees Chinese sort of down to the seventh, eighth generation as somehow belonging to it. How do we talk about warriors of influence there without seeing Chinese Americans or others as inherently a security threat? Look, if you've noticed in this conversation, I've really tried to use the word interference and not influence. And I think it's a practical way of discussing it. If you're going to use influence, let's talk about political influence operations. Because if we're not in sort of a, a full-blown Cold War mode of, you know, it's us or them, you know, there's going to be a lot of things that happen in the gray space. And we draw that line between the black and the gray or the, the acceptable and the unacceptable. And that's a job for a legislature. That's a choice that I think needs to be deliberate. And perhaps some of the, the old legislation needs to be revisited, some of the holes plugged, and some discussion about how far that line should be pushed one way or another. We need more knowledge about what it is that we're dealing with and being able to, to have this conversation about what's acceptable and what, what's unacceptable. Because ultimately in a democracy, it's about citizens making decisions about how we should conduct ourselves. And we don't really want that decision given to the government because in one sense, that's not what our government should be doing. And so there, there's an important role that no matter what expertise is built up inside government, you have to have a transparency component outside. You know, that said, you know, the government does need to have an enforcement mechanism that actually works. I think there's a good sort of human body analogy or disease analogy for, for what this is. United Front work is about an autoimmune virus that's trying to weaken things. When you look at the problems with Confucius Institutes or you look you know, where they've had an impact way beyond what they're supposed to, where they've affected hiring decisions on China Studies faculty, you know, they're operating way out of their lanes. Normal university processes are being circumvented, and people have sort of looked the other way on this. This transparency piece and the enforcement piece inside government are about the antibodies functioning and being healthy so that we can make those decisions and we can say, you know what, we think this isn't acceptable. Or, you know what, this may be distasteful, but it's their choice. So we've seen in New Zealand and in Australia the CCP go fairly hard after people who have played a big role in these discussions, like Anne-Marie Brady in New Zealand who had her breaks interfered with. Do you ever feel that you might potentially be threatened? Do you feel that the, the party has an interest in you? I haven't gotten the physical intimidation that others have gotten. And I haven't had a friend of mine like some of the others in Australia who where that friend travels to China, then gets detained and asked a lot of questions about me. To, at least to my knowledge, those things haven't happened. What has actually been quite striking in the last few months is the number of pings, if you will, that I've gotten from Chinese intelligence. And some of it has been through inter intermediaries who sort of knew me and knew how to contact me, and I don't think they realized who they were talking to on, on the Chinese side. Um, I've had a number of sort of, hey, your LinkedIn request is, has been languishing and you haven't responded to it. And for a couple of those guys that I know are Chinese intelligence, you know, it would be like once a year, once every two years that I'd, you know, get a little thing saying, hey, we're, we're waiting. And now I'm getting it across several email addresses and, you know, in one particular case, it's probably four or five times in the last three months and also through a couple of other intermediaries here in the United States. So that's, that's a definite change. Peter, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me.
That's Foreign Policy Senior Editor James Palmer, speaking with former CIA analyst Peter Mattis. For more on China, check out Foreign Policy's Year in Review on the Country, currently online. First Person is produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I've been your host. (laughs) 